We live, a, we live in a world where, we live in a world uh, of limited love. And sometimes we limit that ourselves, but we worship a God who just keeps giving and giving and giving. So much so that anything we give is just an overflow of what he's given us. That's how that works. That's called grace. And we're learning about that grace and joy here at Windsor in a series through Paul's letter to the Philippians. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. It's on page 981 of your church Bibles, the black Bibles that are in front of you. Uh, And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, please receive it as a gift from this church. And if this is your first Sunday at Windsor Road, we're so glad that you're here. And we hope that you are sensing and experiencing God's overflowing love to you this morning. And uh, my name is Randy, and I'm privileged uh, to serve as the lead minister here at the church. Uh, We are studying Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verse 12, to chapter 4, verse 1. And you can also see the scripture up on the screen if you'd like. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Jesus Christ had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is God's word. Diana Nyad. Know who she is? Earlier this month, 64-year-old Diana Nyad swam 110 miles from Cuba to Florida. She's the first person to do so without a shark cage. She swam 53 hours with 35 people accompanying her in boats. She first tried this feat in 1978. Then she tried and failed again in 2011 and 2012. But on her fifth try, she finished. And when she stood on United States soil, 
She was surrounded by numerous well-wishers and she spoke to reporters and she had three messages that she wanted to give. Message number one, she said, message number one, never, ever, ever give up. Message number two, you are never too old to chase your dreams, ever. And number three, while this looks like a solitary sport, it takes a team. I love it. Uh, That's good, isn't it? Never give up. Chase your dream. You need a team. That'll preach. Thank you. There's a sermon there. Thank you, Diana. God bless you. I I have no idea what her faith background is, uh, but those messages, they certainly echo Paul's message in our passage of Scripture here today. In Philippians chapter 3, Verses 12 through 4, 1, Paul is relentlessly pressing ahead, working out and in hot pursuit of what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. He's not giving up. Furthermore, Jesus is his all-encompassing vision. Jesus is no dream. He is the risen resurrected, reigning son of God. Jesus means more to Paul than life itself. And then Paul, who while he pens the letter to the Philippians, he is under house arrest in Rome for the gospel. Paul knows that he's not alone. He's a part of a team. He's a part of a a community of Christians, a colony of heaven who supports him and to whom he supports as they together await the king. And in these verses here, Paul is calling Christians, he's calling the Philippians then in the first century, and he's calling us today to take Jesus seriously. And Paul uses very familiar cultural word pictures from the world of Philippi, word pictures from sports and politics as he encourages God's people, urging God's people to passionately pursue Christ. And so our big idea this morning is simply this. Uh, God wants us to press on. Press on like Olympians because we're citizens of another realm. That's the word. Press on. It shows up in verse 12. You see it there in verse 14. Paul says, I press on. On. It's an intense word. It means to pursue. It means to chase down. Luke uses it in the book of Acts to describe a time when the Apostle Paul, before he knew Christ, pressed upon the church. That is, to persecute the church. The word means to pound. Paul used to pound the church in persecution before he met Jesus. But now, in Christ, he pounds out what it means to be a fully devoted follower. And so this morning, I want us to consider three questions here about pressing on. First, I want us to think about why it is God wants us to press on. Paul gives us two reasons that we'll see here in just a bit. And then, how? How do we press on? Oh, there's an interesting way that Paul tells us he presses on. And then we'll look at the goal, the where, the destination of our pressing on. That's where we're going this morning. The why, the how, and the where of pressing on like Olympians as citizens of another realm.
Well, first the why. Why does Paul press on? He gives us two reasons here early in these verses. And the first is this. Paul says, I press on because I'm not perfect. I press on because I'm not done. I press on because I've not arrived. That's what's behind verse 12 when he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. Shows up again in verse 14, or excuse me, uh, in verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Paul says, I'm not done yet. I'm still in the race. The race is not over. There is a holy discontent that drives the apostle Paul. And this is so interesting because when we turn over to Philippians chapter 4, Paul is very quick to speak about how blissfully content he is in any and every situation, whether in safety or danger, whether hungry or full, whether in plenty or in need, Paul says, I'm, I'm blissfully content in terms of uh, material possessions. And Paul says, I remain discontented. I have a holy discontent that drives me to want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Paul is telling believers then and now, I'm not perfect. I don't have it all figured out, even as an apostle. In spite of my responsibilities, in spite of my many leadership tasks, I'm not there. I still have much to learn. I've not arrived. I've not arrived. Hear that. One of the, one of the marks of Christian maturity is the realization that you still need to mature. The mature are mature because they know they still need to mature. That's what Paul's saying. I hope that encourages you. Really. I do. Sometimes I wonder, you know, we we come here on Sunday and maybe find ourselves secretly comparing ourselves to other, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ. Bring our Bible and we see somebody else with their Bible and they seem to be able to navigate through the scriptures a little more quickly than maybe we can or you know we're in a small group study and some other believer you know says something really profound and neat you know and you go man why didn't I say that I don't know what to say now and you kind of freeze and we just kind of feel a little intimidated like maybe like we don't fit in can I just say you at ease here please the most mature Christians never stop growing Uh, spiritually, intellectually, emotionally. The the most mature Christians know that they're they're not done. On Friday nights here, our Celebrate Recovery ministry, lives are being touched, and that ministry is led by a leadership team, and they would be the first to tell you that they are leading not because they feel like they've arrived. They're leading not because, well, I'm done with my recovery. No. No, they're leading because their leadership is a part of that recovery, you see. That, that's step 12, isn't it? Having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, we pledge to carry this message to others and practice these principles in all our affairs, you see. The mature are mature because they realize they still need to mature. 
And I hope you know by now, if you don't, I mean, let me just break the news here that I approach this pulpit and I approach our teaching time here, you know, as your brother in Christ, um, if, if you're looking for a flawless pastor, this is not the church. Okay? It's not. We come to our teaching time. We come to the pulpit. I need what we're learning here as much, if not more, than you do. Okay? Do you understand that? Okay. That's important for you to know. We're all on a journey here. And there needs to be a holy discontent. The kind of discontent that doesn't, you know, make you just want to just resign and quit, but the kind of discontent that Paul had is, no, there's more to learn. There's there's more to learn. There's more to know. There's more to to master in terms of my relationship with Christ. I want to go deeper and deeper and deeper. So I press on. That's what Paul says. That's reason number one, okay? Well, there's another reason. Let's take a look at it because I think really it's, it's more important only because it's about Jesus. <laughs> Paul says, I press on to Christ because Christ has pressed me into his service. Paul asserts that this holy discontent he has comes from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul says, I press on to make Christ my own because Christ Jesus first made me his own. What does that mean? It means that the only reason why you have a passion for Christ is because Jesus Christ has given you that passion. That's what that means. It means that we love God because he first loved us. If if you're a Christian, it is not because you woke up one morning and said to yourself, huh, I think I'll give this Jesus a try. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't. Jesus himself said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So your passion for God comes because God began a work in your heart and in your life. That's what's behind Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do you remember Lydia, who was the charter member of the church at Philippi? Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Why did she become a Christian? Because Acts 16, 14 says that when Paul was preaching, the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. So you become a believer because of what God has started. And and your sole responsibility is to stop resisting. That's your part. He starts the work. He completes the work. And your job, stop resisting. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2.12, continue to work out your salvation. Not work for, work out. Press on with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. It means to put his passion in, that he has put in your heart into play. It's a passion that's a response to what God has done. 
God's drawing you. That's what Paul is getting at. And, and, and how do I know that? And how do I know that God is doing a work in my heart? Here's how you know that. You begin to get intense yourself. That's how you know that. When, when you are being grasped and taken a hold of, you, you begin to grasp. You begin to, to passionately pursue. And, and I'm not talking about introverts becoming extroverts. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about an intensity that grows gets a hold of you and you and and you start to think in terms of either or either there is a god or there isn't a god and i'm going to follow the truth wherever it leads Uh, either everything matters or nothing matters what i'm saying is that the cas the casual christianity is over once god starts after you and christianity no longer becomes a hobby to you It's new life in Christ. And that new life propels you to be a giver, not a taker. That new life moves you to be an encourager, not a whiner. That new life moves you to seek success, not at the expense of others, but success by the lifting up of others. That new life helps you see that if and when you fail, you're not crushed because your identity is in Christ and not in that promotion or in that job. Your new life shows up and moves you to work hard because ultimately you realize that your boss is the risen king. It's new life. And that doesn't mean that you have to have a dramatic conversion experience either. Now, Paul's conversion experience was quite violent, but not Lydia's, whom I mentioned earlier. Hers occurred while she was hearing the word of God taught and preached. And, and what about Timothy? Timothy is introduced in Philippians 1.1. Well, his conversion came within the context of a loving mother and grandmother whom God used to bring him to the Lord. What I'm saying is that there, there's no one proper conversion experience. What is common is the realization that a power from outside has come upon you. Anybody here sense that? And you've been coming here, you've been attending, you've been listening, observing, and you're struggling. Why are you struggling? Let the king have his way with your life. Stop resisting. My friend, resistance is futile. (laughs) He wants you. Don't, don't, Don't miss the sweetness of God's passionate pursuit of your life by trying to fight him, okay? Paul says, that's why I press on. I, I, I press on because I'm not done. I'm not perfect. And I press on because I've been pressed upon. You see, that's the why, right? Press on. Well, how? I mean, how does that happen? Well, that's question number two. And the key word is forget. Forget. God wants us to press on by forgetting Anything else that might distract us from Christ. Verse 13. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. 
There it is. Forget. Paul, in these verses, remembers how important it is to forget. Paul forgets. He forgets his achievements. He forgets being a Pharisee. He forgets advancing in his career beyond many his age. He forgets being a Hebrew of Hebrews. He forgets being born of the tribe of Benjamin. He forgets. He forgets his evil. He forgets torturing Christians before he came to Christ. He forgets being there when Stephen was martyred in the book of Acts. He forgets being a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. And by forgetting, Paul means that he does not allow his past to rent space in his brain. He forgets, he, and he forgets to keep score anymore. Philippi was this status-conscious Roman colony, a little piece of Rome there in Greece, fiercely competitive culture. Historians tell us that Philippi was obsessed with what they call the cursus honorum, the honor race, an honor race, this, this earthbound vying and jockeying for position and status, this scrutinizing of others, secretly hoping that they will make some sort of public social blunder so that you may take their rung on the ambitious ladder of status and rank. Paul says, I am not going to run that race, and neither should you. I want to run a race that matters, and that's a good word for us. Because some of us are running in races that really don't matter. We're racing toward the next big thing. We're racing toward the next vacation. We're racing toward the next thrilling experience. We're racing toward the next relationship. We're racing toward the next career advancement. We're running races where if you lose, you'll be crushed by the failure. But worse, if you win, you'll realize nobody really cares. You're running an irrelevant race. You're racing to impress people that don't deserve to be impressed. And once you succeed, you realize what a waste of time it was after all. Forget that. Forget what is behind. And when is that going to happen? When are you going to forget? When are you going to forget the past that you can't change? When are you going to forget a mistake that you cannot undo? When are you going to forget the sin that was committed against you? When are you going to forget that? When are you going to forget the grudge? When are you going to stop being grasped by the past and instead let Christ grasp you? Paul says in verse 15, that's how the mature think. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Did you hear his tone there? Isn't that gracious? Well, you know. If any of you think otherwise, this is is how the mature think. If any of you think otherwise, God will reveal. Paul, Paul is an apostle, not a nanny. You may not buy into what I'm saying. That's okay. God will make that clear. Wow, how gracious. And then note his invitation in verse 17. Join with me in imitating Christ. That's what's behind Verse 17, join in imitating me. That's actually a one word, join in imitating me. It's, it's one word. 
uh, it's a word that Paul actually made up himself. We we don't see that word appearing any other time in the New Testament. And in fact, we don't see that word appearing at all in ancient history. Paul coins it. He makes it up right there. Join, imitate with me, Jesus, to the world. And why? Well, that gets to our destination here, you see. God wants us to press on in anticipation of the arrival of his glorious kingdom Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the fundamental truth of Christianity that one day Jesus Christ will appear a second time. It's a fundamental, non-negotiable truth that one day Jesus Christ is coming again. This is what the Bible calls the day. The day, the second coming, the return of Christ. The Bible teaches that one day Jesus Christ will make a personal return to earth. He's not going to send someone else to represent him. He's coming back himself. And it's going to be happening literally. Just as real as you see this pulpit or or feel the cushion on your chair or smell the harvest of fall in the air. Jesus is really returning. It will happen visibly. You'll be able to see his return with your own eyes. It will not be in a vision or a dream or a trance. This Jesus who was born in Bethlehem is coming again. The same Jesus who grew up in Nazareth is coming again. The same Jesus who walked on water is coming again. The same Jesus who was brutally whipped and beaten and crucified and died and rose on Easter. This same Jesus is is coming again. The actual historical figure who lived 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world will make a return to earth one more time. Amen. At his first coming, Jesus nearly went unnoticed. When he comes again, every eye will see him. At his first coming, It was in a season of expectation. When he comes again, it will be sudden and unexpected. At his first coming, Jesus entered Jerusalem on the fall of a donkey. When he comes again, he will appear on a war horse with power and glory. At his first coming, Jesus said, it is finished while dying on a Roman cross for our sins. At his second coming, Jesus will shout, it is done, and all evil will shrivel and die. Brothers and sisters, this Jesus who died and rose to life has promised us that one day he will return to renew the heavens and the earth. He will interrupt life on this earth with his life. And when he comes, he will raise the dead. When he comes, he will transform our mortal bodies into glorious immortal bodies of his own likeness. And when he comes, he will establish his eternal rule in the new heavens and the new earth. The government of the new heavens and the new earth will consist of one person, Jesus. That's it. Our citizenship is in heaven. Yet ultimately, don't miss this, heaven is not us going somewhere out there. 
Instead, eternal life will be lived in the new heavens and the new earth with new bodies. God is coming to live with his people. Our citizenship is in heaven. And the Apostle Paul says, and from it we await a Savior. That's a great phrase because, you see, that phrase, that, that word was used specifically of Caesar who was hailed as Savior of Rome. And whenever the citizens of a town heard that they were going to be the, the fortunate recipients of an imperial visit, oh, my goodness, they would eagerly await Caesar's arrival and they would go outside the city and wait for their king to come. And here in these verses, Paul insists that our Savior is not some mortal from Rome. Rather, our Savior is the immortal risen Son of God now seated at the right hand of the Father. And until he comes, we wait. We wait. And it's a discipline. It's a discipline of waiting. This, this discipline of waiting teaches us delayed gratification because our world is not a waiting world, is it? Our world doesn't like to wait at all. I don't like to wait. I found that out Friday when I needed to get my driver's license renewed. I got there right when the, right when the shop opened and there was a line of people out there. What are you doing? What? What's going on here? I, I, I heave a sigh at Starbucks whenever there's a line. I hate to wait at the golf course. What is up with that? I feel put out when it takes 10 seconds longer to load a web page. This is not my plan, God. God says, well, I have a different plan. I have a different perspective than you. You see, from God's point of view, <laughs> waiting is not an interruption of the plan. Waiting is part of the plan. In God's point of view, waiting is not just marking time. Waiting is about becoming. Waiting is about God gradually changing us into what he has made us to be. Waiting is what God does to ready us for his arrival. I like what Dave Harvey says in his, uh, his excellent book, Rescuing Ambition. He says, waiting redefines our definition of productivity. Waiting is God's reorientation program at our definition of success. And from God's point of view, every minute we wait is God's way of making us ready for him. That's what he's doing. He wants you. I am making you ready. I want to make you into a mighty oak tree. That's what Isaiah 61.3 says. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That he may be glorified. You come here today and say, what's God's plan for my life? Here's his plan. His plan is to make you into a mighty oak tree. That's the plan. And that can only happen after multiple seasons of summer, sunshine, winter, wind, rain, sleet, snow. That's 
how God makes mighty oak trees. And did you notice how the prophet Isaiah did not say that God was at work making us toadstools of righteousness? Man, those things grow up overnight in my front yard. I can knock them down by flicking them with the finger. God's calling us to be oaks. That's going to take a lot more time. And so we wait. We wait. We wait and we live through seasons where he is refining us so that we will be people of enduring strength whose lives point to his glory. And when he comes, and one day he will, it's going to be a whole new day. Paul says, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Why can, why can we believe this? We can believe this because our king died a slave's death only to rise in victory. That's why we can believe this. That's our destiny. Citizenship is in heaven. And, and, and on his arrival, on his arrival, we who have been rescued from the penalty of sin. On his arrival, we who are being rescued from the power of sin. On his arrival, in the new heavens and the new earth, at last, we will be rescued from the presence of sin. See, See, you, you were rescued from the penalty of sin the day you received Christ. And so here Paul says, I'm pressing on, becoming more and more like Christ. And and moment by moment, as God is growing us into these mighty uh, oaks of righteousness, we are being rescued from the power of sin. But there's going to come a day when we are going to ultimately be rescued from sin's presence. Can you imagine? You think about all of the, the... just things that you want to do for God, but it just is so hard because your body is so tired or you don't have the desires that you wish you had. I mean, that has to do with the fact that we live in a sinful, broken, fallen world. Think about, think about what a habitat for humanity house is going to look like in the new heavens and the new earth. That's going to be beautiful. It's not bad now. Wait till later. Huh? Wait till later. Martin Luther was once asked, what would you do today if you found out Jesus was coming back tomorrow? He said, I'd plant a tree. That's going to be some tree in the new heavens and the new earth. He'll transform our lowly bodies into the likeness of his glorious body. Does that that resonate with your spirit? It's because Christ has done a work in your life. Someone once said, the sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing the longing to reach the mountain, the longing to find the place where all the beauty came from, my country, the place where I ought to have been born. Do you think it all meant nothing, all the longing, the longing for home? For indeed, it now feels not like going, but like going back. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so we press on. 
I once scorned every fearful thought of death when it was but the end of pulse and breath, but now my eyes have seen that past the pain there is a world that's waiting to be claimed. Earth maker, holy, let me now depart for living's such a temporary art and dying is but getting dressed for God. Our graves are merely doorways cut in sod. Let's pray.